Do you have your Bibles? John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you've not been with us on Sunday mornings, we have been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We've titled this series of sermons, Getting to Know Jesus, Believe and Live. The reason we are calling it by that title is because that was John's desire for his readers. And that's John's desire for us as well. He wanted them to know who Jesus Christ was, and as a result of knowing who Christ was, that they would believe on him, that they would trust in him as the Lord who saves, and that they would experience life to the fullest. Now, I want you to think about this question for just a moment this morning. Are you experiencing life to the fullest right now? If you're not experiencing life to the fullest, it's because of one or two reasons. One is because you don't possess eternal life. You've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can't experience something that you don't have. And my prayer is today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll come into a relationship with Him. If you're here and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you say, Brother Jeff, if I were honestly, if I had to honestly devaluate my life this morning, I'm not really experiencing that joy and peace of walking in constant fellowship with the Lord, then let me just say this to you very clearly. It's not because He's moved away. It's because you've moved away. And you see, at any point in time, we're willing to confess that to the Lord, repent of it, surrender our life to Him, and walk in submission before the Lord God, we will experience life to the fullest. Eternal life is not something we experience one day down the road when we die. It's actually a quality of life that God wants you to experience right now as you live in day-in and day-out relationship with Him. That is an awesome privilege. If you haven't experienced that, well, let me just share with you. I want you to know God loves you, and He's done everything that is necessary for you to experience that in your life. So all you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, believing that He is the Lord that saves, and He will come in and save you today. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the truth of God's Word. If you've not experienced that in your life, in a few moments when we get to the time of invitation, I'm going to invite you to come down front because I want to share with you about how I want to walk with you through making that relationship today. Chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. If you've been with us, we've been walking here in Chapter 7 for several weeks now. I shared with you on the first Sunday when we began to look the context of this chapter is the Feast of Booths. That is what's taking place, or sometimes it's referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. There were three feasts that all Jewish men were expected to attend every year. One of them was this one, and of all three, it was the most joyous occasion. It was a time where God's people came together at the temple and for a week-long worship service, they just celebrated who God was. They celebrated His provision in their life. They remembered back to the Old Testament when God had provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness, and then 
They also remembered how God provided for them daily in their life. This particular feast happened at the time of harvest. And so it was a daily reminder of God's provision. But it was also a spiritual reminder of God's provision in their life. One day, God would send a Messiah who would save his people from their sins. Now, what's the unique thing about chapter 7? We see the fulfillment of that feast before our very eyes. Jesus Christ, on the very last day, stands to his feet, and he loudly announces to the crowd in, this, in, the, in the temple with these words, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Can you get this picture in your mind? There are thousands of people gathered in the temple. Thousands of them. There to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The priest has dipped up a pitcher of water out of the pool of Siloam. He and the people have proceeded back into the temple. He is pouring the water around the altar that is in the temple. And at that specific moment in time, Jesus in a loud voice stands up and declares to the people, I am the one. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I have come to save my people from their sins, is what he announces in this crowd. And you know what would be so nice? If everyone fell down on their knees at that moment in time and worshiped Jesus Christ, but that did not happen. When you approach chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, it is a chapter that is full of conflict. It is a chapter that is full of dissension, division. There's division between Jesus and his brothers. Do you remember at the beginning of the chapter? Jesus' brothers challenged Jesus to go up to the temple and make a public announcement to the world of who he was. Maybe he could regather some of those disciples that he had lost along the same way if he would just make a public pronouncement. Jesus refused to do that. There's dissension among the crowd. They're bickering, they're arguing, they're in conflict with one another over who Jesus Christ is. And then, if that's not enough, there is even dissension among the religious leaders in this passage of Scripture. When I read this passage of Scripture this week, I thought about this question. The question that came to my mind as I looked at this chapter and looked at all of the division and the dissension that is happening is this. Is Jesus Christ a divisive person? Is Jesus Christ a divisive person? Now, if you're like me, I would like to answer that question, no. As a matter of fact, when I read in Scripture, for instance, in John chapter 13, Jesus Christ prays that his believers would be unified with one another. 
As a matter of fact, he tells his apostles, the world will know that you're mine by your love for one another. That doesn't seem very divisive, does it? But then when I balance that with what I read in chapter 10 of the book of Matthew, where Jesus Christ says, I did not come into the world to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. I have come to set son against father and daughter against mother. And when I read that, I'm like, oh my goodness. That doesn't sound very unifying, does it? That sounds quite divisive. So what is the truth? Is Jesus Christ a divisive person? Well, this is the way I would answer that. I would say any clear perspective of Jesus Christ, at least in part, must see him as a person who divides. Would you agree with me on that? I would say that's true. And that is surely clear in this passage of Scripture. Now, when I think about that, there's a question that comes to mind. Why was there so much division around Jesus Christ? Well, the way I would answer that is first by saying this, because Jesus Christ is truth, and truth necessarily divides. Isn't that true? Now, most postmodernists would want us to believe today there is no absolute truth in the world. Isn't that what they want us to believe? As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ drew a sand, a line in the sand when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was clearly making the statement to people. It is not enough to just have a genuine belief in just anything in life. Only can a person be saved through me. And I will tell you, that statement is inherently divisive. It divides. It puts people on both sides of the fence, does it not? But then I would say there's another reason as well. This is it. Because Satan hates the truth and Satan hates Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches us that he is a deceiver, the father of all lies. He has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually, he wants to do that in every person's life. As a matter of fact, the very last words that the Apostle Paul spoke to the pastors of Ephesus in Acts, the 20th chapter, Paul warned them, be careful when I am gone. There will be one who will come in. He is like a wolf, and he will seek to devour the flock. You need to be careful. I will tell you, Satan is divisive. Satan hates the truth. He hates everything about the truth. And oftentimes, he creates major division even among God's people. We all know horror stories of churches that have split over the color of the carpet, haven't we? We do. I hope that we will never ever be that kind of church. Oh, Lord, help us if we ever are. There are some hills that are worth dying on. The color of the carpet in the church is not one of them. 
whether you have pews or chairs, is not one of them. Can I just say that? No. The color on the wall is not one of them. Do you see what I'm meaning? As chapter 7 prepares to close, the conflict is swirling around Jesus Christ. The division continues to grow. I want you to listen to the closing words of chapter 7. Yes, chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 40. I want you to listen to what it is that John records. Then after we read this, I'm just going to give you four practical lessons that we see in this passage of Scripture. Actually, four practical lessons that we've really learned to this point in our study in the Gospel of John. So follow along with me when we read. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now let's just pause right there. The words that John is referring to are the words that I read to you earlier. It was what Jesus Christ had quoted in the temple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Some said this must really be a prophet based on those words. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division. There it is right there. Do you see it? There was division among the people over Jesus Christ. Some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him. Now just let me pause here because I will say this to you this morning. In the world we live in today, we live in a divided world over who Jesus Christ is. It has not changed in 2,000 years. There is still division among people exactly over who Jesus Christ is. Is Jesus Christ simply a good teacher? Is he simply just a man who led a religious following? Or is Jesus Christ truly who he said he was? That is a question that every single person will have to answer in life. Who is Jesus Christ. There has been no single individual who has divided the world more than Jesus Christ. Think about it. I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. I have come to set son against father and daughter against mother. Let me say this. We don't see a lot of that in America today. In America today, oftentimes if a person trusts Jesus Christ, that does not mean they are disowned by their family. It does not mean that they lose their livelihood. But I will tell you, in the rest of the world, oftentimes, when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it cost them everything. All of it. It cost them their family relationships. 
It costs them the place where they live. It costs them their livelihood. And I would submit to you this morning, a Christianity that costs you nothing means you have nothing. The Bible is very clear. There is a cost in following Jesus Christ. Surely our cost may look different here in America, but there is no such religion as the Christianity of the New Testament without a cost. It costs to follow Christ. That is the truth of God's Word. Now go back here and look at what he says here. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has done? They replied, that's the religious leaders, are you from Galilee? Now, let me just say this. That is not a compliment. All right? That's not what they're saying. Are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This morning, I want to offer you quickly four lessons that we see in this passage, four practical lessons that we can apply to our life. If you are writing them down, this is lesson number one. The clearest gospel presentation in the world can't draw someone to Jesus Christ unless their eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. Listen to it again. The clearest gospel presentation in the world can't draw someone to Jesus Christ unless their eyes are open by the Holy Spirit. That has been a truth that we have seen throughout the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, in the sixth chapter, Jesus Christ made this statement, no one can come unto the Father unless he is drawn by the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God that draws and convicts someone of their need for Jesus Christ. Look at this. We have one of the clearest gospel presentations found anywhere in the Word of God in this passage of Scripture. You heard it earlier when Jesus Christ says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It can't get any clearer than that. But when we get to the end of this passage of Scripture, there is still much division among the people, and none of them have yet to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The clearest gospel presentation in the world can't draw someone to Jesus Christ unless their eyes are open by the Holy Spirit. Saving faith is always a God thing. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with someone. In my time in the ministry, I've had the opportunity, the privilege of doing that a number of different times. In my limited understanding at times, I thought I had waxed eloquently with the gospel message. 
you know, got all of the words in the right places and used all of the correct theological terms that needed to be used only to have a blank stare. And I'm like, are they not getting what I'm trying to tell them? Have you ever experienced that in life? I have. And then there have been other times where I have absolutely stumbled over every other word out of my mouth. And I'm like, no one can make any sense of that. And all of a sudden, it's like a light goes on in someone's eyes. And they're like, that is what I need more than anything else. I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Let me just say to you, salvation is a miracle of God. You and I can save no one. We have simply been called to be faithful in making Christ known to a lost and dying world. It is the Spirit of God that draws people unto a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The clearest gospel presentation in the world will save no one. It is only as the Spirit of God opens people's eyes and convicts them and draws them that they can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Number two, the human heart, apart from God's grace, is helplessly and hopelessly incapacitated by sin. Let me say it one more time. The human heart, apart from God's grace, is helplessly and hopelessly incapacitated by sin. The religious leaders are a perfect example of that in this story. Do you see it when I read it earlier? It is the sin of pride that keeps them from coming to Jesus Christ. Now think about it for a moment. The religious leaders accuse the people of not knowing the law. The religious leaders were the ones who were supposed to know the law. They were the ones who had been schooled in the law. The law is the Old Testament Scripture. If they would have just taken a half a moment to talk with the people and to have looked in the law, they would have learned two very important things. First, they would have learned that Jesus Christ was truly of the lineage of David and He was born in the, uh, the town of Bethlehem, just as the prophet had announced. The second thing they would have learned was this. They would have learned that there was another great prophet from the area of Galilee and his name was Jonah it was the sin of pride that kept them hopelessly and helplessly separated from Jesus Christ they refused to bow their knee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ was the Lord who saves Let me just say this this morning. I believe there's people just like that here in this building today. It is the sin of pride that keeps them from being all that God desires for them to be. Sometimes it's the sin of pride that keeps them from trusting in Christ. There are people here that are more concerned about how it will look if they were to make that kind of decision in front of a group of people, then they are concerned about their eternal state of their soul. That's pride. Others here are 
Christians, that's what they call them, but they're not living the way the Lord wants them to. And they're they're not willing to acknowledge that. Their sin is no different than the sin of the religious leaders in this passage of Scripture. It was the religious leaders' sin of pride that kept them hopelessly and helplessly separated from God. Number three, if you are a true follower of Christ, you can expect to face ridicule in this life. Let me say it again. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you can expect to face ridicule in this life. You can expect to be labeled in all kinds of ways. You'll be called homophobic, racist, bigoted, a religious zealot, holier than thou, and the list can go on and on and on. But can I tell you something today that should not catch you by surprise? As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ said every follower of his will experience that in life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, the fifth chapter, and 10th, 11th verse, he's speaking to his followers. You know what he says? If the prophets before you were persecuted, you can expect to be persecuted as well. That's scriptural. Did you also know suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ is considered to be a gift given by God? Turn your Bibles real quick over to Philippians, the first chapter. Paul's in prison in Rome in chains for the cause of the gospel. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and I want you to listen to what he says here at the end of chapter 1. This is one of the great verses of Scripture. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. What was the conflict that Paul had been engaged in? The conflict that Paul had been engaged in, he had been cursed, persecuted for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, folks. We need to understand something. New Testament Christianity clearly points out if we are truly living our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted for our faith. That is scriptural. Jesus Christ said that. That's not me. That's what, those are the words of Jesus Christ. He says that. That's what he says here. If they persecuted the prophets before you, they will persecute you as well. Consider it a gift from God when you suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. The early, the early Christians counted it joy that they could be persecuted in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you know why they did that? It gave them an opportunity to relate to Christ in His suffering. 
If you truly follow Christ, I will tell you, you can expect to, be, to face ridicule in life. Number four, the last one. Jesus doesn't allow neutrality with his followers. Jesus doesn't allow neutrality with his followers. To be neutral is to be no follower at all. Think about it for a moment. In this passage of Scripture, there were some who said Jesus Christ was a prophet. Others said Jesus Christ was the Christ. Some of them didn't believe anything at all. But what I want you to notice about this passage of Scripture, not a single person in this passage indicated any kind of commitment to Jesus Christ. It's not there. You won't find it. Now, of all of those that are represented in this passage, Nicodemus gives somewhat of a half-hearted defense of Jesus Christ. Doesn't he? Yeah, he does that. If you follow out the rest of Nicodemus' story, this is what you'll realize. There eventually comes a point in time in Nicodemus' life where he steps out of the closet and he boldly proclaims who Jesus Christ is. When he goes before Pontius Pilate, the most powerful man in Palestine, the man who could have spoke the word and had Nicodemus put to death, Nicodemus stands in his presence and he boldly asks for the body of Jesus Christ. He is identifying himself with Jesus Christ at that moment in time. And I would tell you this, as followers of Christ, true followers of Christ, at some point in time, every single one of us will have to come out of the closet. You cannot live the Christian life in anonymity. It's just not possible. I mean, listen to the words of Jesus Christ. You decide for yourself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In this verse of Scripture, Jesus Christ makes it very clear to be neutral is to be no follower of his. No follower of his. I'm going to ask you a very pointed question this morning. Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? At your workplace, in your school, in your circle of friends, among your family members, are you willing to boldly Stand and be counted with Christ or are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ very clearly said to be neutral is to be no follower of mine. If you're ashamed of me, one day when I come in my glory, let me just tell you, I will be ashamed of you. You are either for Christ 
or you are against Christ. You cannot ride the fence in Christianity. We've made it so you can in America. But I will tell you, that is not New Testament biblical Christianity. New Testament biblical Christianity is unashamed of who Jesus Christ is. Think about it. They came to know Christ. Once they came to know Christ in the face of persecution, they're standing in the midst of great odds being counted with Christ, unashamed of Christ, announcing to the world, it is only by the name of Jesus Christ that you can be saved. There is no other way that you can be saved except by the name of Jesus Christ. And they did it unashamedly. They did it unashamedly. The real question we must ask ourselves this morning is are we willing to be counted with Christ or are we not willing to be counted with Christ? There is no fence riding. Are you ashamed of who Jesus Christ is? Father God, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word and the way it speaks into our hearts and our lives this morning. Father, what a challenging message for us all today to take a step back and just to look at our lives with you, Lord. Father, to be neutral in our relationship with Jesus Christ is really to have no relationship at all. We are either boldly walking with Christ in a lost and dying world. I'm not saying that we're being crazy about our faith. That's not what I'm saying. But we are not ashamed of who Jesus Christ is and to be counted with Him. Father, as we enter into this time of invitation, You continue to guide us to make the decisions that we need to make today. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen.